This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Great to have you along. Libby returns tomorrow. What a beautiful day for a day off. She might even be playing tennis. We'll see tomorrow. Well, as we do every Tuesday at this time, the strategy panel joins us on Fight Back. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner at Fleshman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, and Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist and Senior Counsel to National Public Relations. Hello, panelists. Hi, Jane. Hello. Well, let's talk first about the Auditor General's less than complimentary report on Canada's pandemic response. And by the way, the Auditor General herself, Karen Hogan, will join Libby on Fight Back tomorrow. John, the biggest issue is around, or it seems to have been around, the lack of pandemic preparedness and underestimating the potential impact of the virus back at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, and I can I can tell you, Jane and and uh, Bob will know this because Bob's worked for a number of uh, political ministers and leaders, and that is any auditor general. Uh, there's always a fear whenever he or she gets up to do a report because uh, you know it's going to be tough and it's it's going to be uh, you know in some cases um, it, 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 it transparent and 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 what they come up with. And this one was no different, obviously, with with a couple of things. Not only with the actual concern regarding the government being a little bit behind and, and how they handled the uh, the pandemic, but also on the infrastructure and, and sort of the money that's not been spent there. So there's been a couple of hits that, that the Auditor General gave to this government. I would say, look, you know, it, it's, it's easy to kind of look back and, and say what governments have done and have not done particularly well. And, and there'll be a time, I think, when, when this pandemic is over, where there'll be a lot, of, a lot of that kind of analysis as to what governments did well, what governments did wrong. I think the key thing here is that the two health organizations, um, both PHAC and and of course, the Global Public Health Intelligence Network were the ones that were, I think, most to blame, uh, according to the Auto General, with respect to not taking the pandemic serious enough at the, at the early stages. Uh, PHAC not sort of realizing that once once the pandemic hit, how how serious it was going to be, and 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 I think that sort of gave the government sort of some some bad advice or bad counsel with respect to how they were going to obviously roll up roll this out. So you know I think that's an important thing that that is good to know because if this ever happens again, God forbid mm. uh, that this kind of stuff won't happen again. Um, but you know like, like I think that those are just I think it's more just for learnings than anything else, and I think that's what we should be looking at these kind of reports as uh, are such. Bob, how are you looking at this AG report? You know, not that differently uh, from uh, from what John said. I think it's important to know that in Ottawa, the Ministry or, or the Department of Health is not an important department in the structure of the federal government. It's a terrible thing to say, but it's the truth. It's viewed as a Tier 2, Tier 3 department. Uh, it does not generally have usually a senior minister. And the public health agency would be viewed, quite frankly, in Ottawa as a bit of a backwater. Uh, and I think over the last 10 years, uh, there's been neglect there. There's no question about that. And it's reflected in the lack of preparedness. The option on health care is at the provincial level in this country. 
But the, but I think what this is showing us is that we just can't tolerate a situation where you know the federal uh, federal uh, health Canada is sort of asleep at the switch. So hopefully this report, uh, a number of things will get fixed as a result of it. One other thing I would say though is I'm not sure how useful it is in the middle of a pandemic, whether it's the provincial auditor going after the you know uh, the health ministry in Ontario or or, or this aud- uh, auditor general going after the federal agency. I am not sure how useful that is at this time. I think there's a time and a place for a comprehensive, uh, independent review of how did we do and what, what can we do better. I'm not sure the middle of the pandemic's terribly useful. And that's because uh, you're putting the government on the defensive to answer for questions yeah. while they while they should be keeping their eye on the prize. I guess that's what you're saying. Yeah, and if you spend any time in government, you know it takes hundreds of hours to respond to these things. So I bet you a whole pile of people have been working on responses to this study as opposed to public health, which is what we need at the moment. Karen, what are your thoughts about this AG report, such as it is? Well, you know, again, um, to echo uh, my colleagues' comments, there's also a piece missing, right, which is the context. And if if I try to remember back to last January, February, even March, you know, the World Health Organization wasn't declaring it as something is critical. They were, they were saying low risk, low risk, low risk. So, you know, whether we were at fault for taking the lead of what the World Health Organization was telling us to follow, perhaps, um, you know, there's no question that we let down our pandemic alert system and that it had been defunded over a period of years. And that's something that we need to pay attention to because what, what we didn't know is that the world actually relied on us to give them some information that we weren't providing. So I think that's good for us to know that we actually abdicated a leadership role whether now we need to debate it, to you know, I, I don't know, um, to Bob's point. But, but you know, I think there's some context there because, you know, again, when I was living through this in January and February and March, I'm like, what's going on over in China, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't make that leap to what could possibly happen in my community. Like, I remember, not to take us off tangent here, but, you know, briefing my board on risk risk assessment. And, you know, my I was briefing my board about um, IT breaches and security breaches and potential theft of information. I didn't even think to talk about the pandemic because that's how low it was on my personal radar that we could actually be closed for over a year because of this pandemic. So, you know, I think it's what we know now, if we, of course, if we, if we had known now what we, you know, potentially should have known then, but, you know, we were even being praised for not closing our borders and we were being praised for not halting flights from China, right? As, as you know, as being good citizens of the world, and you know, and looking back now, that's ludicrous. Like the first thing we should have done is stop flight internationally before we did anything else. But again, we didn't know. You're right, and I also remember even uh, when you look here in the city of Toronto, uh, some of the local politicians, and I think they may have been joined by provincial and federal as well, going out to local restaurants, uh, Chinese restaurants, to say, you know, don't don't stop going out to eat. You make sure that you're frequenting our our Chinese community restaurants. So there was a big push to get out there and to to support uh, the Chinese Canadians in our own community, which would go against everything when there's a pandemic about to happen, John. Yeah, and, and that's the kind of thing that I guess, you know, early on, when, when everybody was kind of like looking at each other and sort of wondering what the heck's going on, and we were hearing this coming in from Europe, and 
Uh, and, you know, President Trump at the time, you know, decided that he was going to shut the border early on and he was getting criticized for it. And then, of course, we were we were laggard in, in sort of in the Canada, U.S., Canada border uh, crossings, all that kind of stuff. I think, you know, we just didn't know to what extent. And we were hearing, quite frankly, from not only who, the uh, the International Health Organization, uh, they were saying one thing, the, the, you know, Dr. Fauci and others were saying one thing, our own health groups, as we talked about earlier, not only PHAC, but the global uh, public health intelligence network weren't saying that this was a serious risk. So there's a lot of that information that was coming at the politicians. And to their credit, I think they were just trying to do what they could at the moment to, to sort of, uh, you know, adhere to what the health professionals were saying and what they were hearing, uh, but also in, in keeping in with what, what was happening to, in their various jurisdictions. Like I remember Mayor uh, Tory, who, you know, you know, took it upon himself and others to say, look, you know, we could still do things here in, in Toronto uh, and we should be mindful of, of what's happening because that's what he was told to do and that's what he mm-hmm. was supposed to do. And I think he, you know, was looked upon at the time doing the right things at the right time. So a lot of that, I think, was, was happening because we didn't know. Now, a year later, uh, you know, we've gotten smarter. We've got, we've gotten a lot better. We, we know what's been happening and we've got the vaccines out there now. So things are, are a bit different. And what, what will measure the success of all this, uh, of this pandemic, given the, the tragedy that has occurred is, is if it was to happen again, uh, if there's another vi- uh, a vi- variant or something was supposed to happen in a year or so from now, God forbid, we've got these learnings that we took from this that will make sure that this will never happen again to the extent that it has. I think, you know, blame really rests with the Public Health Agency of Canada. They were established to ensure the country was ready for a major outbreak, but was not as well prepared as it could have been. This is what the AG said, because major contingency plans and issues related to surveillance had not been resolved or dealt with. And this was not this. These kinds of issues had been brought up in the past by previous auditors general that were not ready should there be a pandemic, Bob. So I think, you know, that is certainly something we can look back on and say that was the missing piece in the beginning of all this. Well, I think I think a lot of people can take a bow on this one. I think the federal federal agencies one of them, but you know, if the provincial agencies, which where the real healthcare work goes on in this country, are not taking them seriously or aren't working with them, that's not going to be great. Uh, and, and don't see them as a priority. That's probably not going to be great. And if there isn't proper political oversight. And people going, this is a huge priority. I need this done, um, and staying on top of them, then uh, then you get a situation like we have here. So I think there's some uh, responsibility uh, by the politicians. There's certainly responsibility by the federal agency and the federal government, and I think likely there's responsibility by the provinces too as well. And in terms of collaboration, uh, you probably all remember as well back in March, and I think it would have been when people were returning from March break vacations, complaining that nobody had to wear masks in the lineups to go through customs. People were certainly not distancing. Uh, There was really no assessment uh, of uh, the potential for bringing this virus into the country. So that was a mess. But Karen, at the same time, and it was even earlier than that, you had people coming back from China who were being housed in motels um, in Trenton, Ontario. They were they were literally kept prisoner for a couple of weeks to make sure that if they did have the virus, they wouldn't spread it. So there just wasn't that consistency in the early going. Yeah, there's no question. 
And, um, you know, I, I would say that um, I do believe that the government wasn't ready for a pandemic. And, and, I, and I say that because, you know, it's been what, 100, almost 100 years since our last pandemic, and your memory stayed in 100 years. And if governments are being told, you know, if I had been told as a member of the government that if, we don't, if we're not prepared for a pandemic, it could shut down our economy for a year, you know, I might not have taken it that seriously, to be candid. Yeah. You know, now I would. But, you know, two years ago, two and a half years ago, 10 years ago, it, you know, they have to make decisions about scarce resources and putting money towards some existential threat you can't define versus uh, a, a real problem that you need to solve today. Unfortunately, politicians tend to go to the real problem. And so, you know, I, I think it's, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to give anyone an excuse on this because to your point, their job was to be ready. The job was to say to the government, I know that you might not believe this could happen, but this could happen and we need to be ready for if it does. But to Bob's point, it wasn't a powerful ministry. It didn't have that voice at the table. And, you know, I think that there was really um, a rationalization of scarce resources because nobody could contemplate what we currently have. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was just in anybody's consciousness to really contemplate what could happen if we weren't prepared. Now we know. Now I hope that we will stay prepared, but, you know, we might have to stay prepared for another 120 years. Maybe it'll be 60, but hopefully those memories won't fade. Yeah, and one thing, too, Jane, on that is that, you know, the whole issue of PPEs and having to be reliant upon, you know, foreign countries to, uh, to, to get that, I think that will never happen again. I think one of the main lessons that we've learned is that, uh, that you know, manufacturing, um, you know, PPEs and, and even, quite frankly, vaccines, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of that. that that's going to be happening now. It's happening now and will, uh, will happen in the future. And that's one area I think that, that if this ever happens again, we will not be stuck relying on other countries for those kind of materials. Yeah, but but John, like, and not to take us down a, a you know a rabbit hole here, but can, I can see a headline. You know, if we had to dispose of, you know, ten million masks or ten million gowns because they had expired and we were buying new ones, I can see how the public might not think that's a good investment. Now they will, but ten years ago, you know, maybe the government wouldn't have wanted to have to deal with that. Right. Let's go to the phones. Uh, Pat in Toronto wants to get in on the conversation with our strategy panelists. Pat, go ahead. I think we're missing a big aspect here. You know, 90% of Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. It's the fact that the U.S. under Mr. Trump dropped the ball. That's the reason that we were behind as well. I mean, we look to the CDC and organizations like that to be on top of things. We are a very small country, so I don't think that we should be held responsible very much for this. I mean, this goes back to the U.S. The one thing, and I've raised it before, we need to get something in the free trade legislation to ensure that we don't get cut off from vaccines, which are manufactured just west of um, Detroit. So, you know... And and if everybody thinks we're going to start manufacturing our own vaccines, I don't think you understand the costs and, and, you know, the magnitude of the burden that you're putting on us, on the Canadian taxpayer, because it would cost probably 10 times as much if we were to get into the vaccine business. 
Pat, thank you for your call. Uh, Bob, I'll give you the final word on this before we move on to the next topic. But it reminds me, Barack Obama saying, uh, saying we had a whole pandemic response manual. And I think that Donald Trump is using it to hold up a table leg. You know, like he's he seemed to have a grasp that this was going to happen or that it could happen. But certainly there was very little talk about it in advance. Yeah, I, I I tend to agree with Karen on this. I think uh, politicians uh, were probably presented with a suite of different choices on on things that they needed to put money on. And if I was a politician at at the time, and somebody said, "Geez, we need to put more money into long term care," or "Geez, we need to put money into long term pandemic planning," I would have gone with long term care. I think probably mm-hmm. most people would. So I think as a result of that, we're paying a price today for it. Uh, at both the federal, provincial, and quite frankly, even at the city level. Um, so it's something we're going to have to rethink, and we're going to have to figure out a better way to do this on an ongoing basis, because I suspect these sort of things aren't going away. Once again, we can uh, revive this conversation tomorrow when Libby welcomes the Auditor General to the show to talk more in depth ab- about the report and her findings. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby, along with John Capobianco, Karen Stintz, and Bob Richardson, changing topics. Uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, you all know about the latest guidance and what's been agreed upon uh, by all of the provinces and territories, all of the chief medical officers of health, that it will not be, at least for the time being, administered to people under the age of 55 due to safety concerns around rare instances of blood clots. Your, th- your thoughts on how this is all being handled? John, we'll start with you. Well, this is becoming a schlamazel, um, and and it's uh, and it's causing no shortage of, of angst and, and consternation to uh, not only health authorities but also to uh, to politicians and most specifically to to Canadians. Um, you know, everybody wants to have uh, a vaccine, and we always celebrate whenever a pharmaceutical company comes up with a vaccine. And and you know, with Pfizer and credit to them when they first came up with this, it was ninety ninety percent plus. Uh, effective, you know, was, was great. Then, of course, the challenge with Pfizer was that it's a two dose, and of course, the storage had to be below some, you know, some uh, 80 degrees or so, and, and temperature. So that became a hard uh, product to be able to supply, and not only that, but st- not only to store, but but also to ship. And then, of course, Moderna came with theirs, and, and then Johnson and Johnson's coming with their one dose, and AstraZeneca as well. Like, I think we should we should applaud all the pharmaceutical companies that are able to do this within a year, because that is that is historic in, in, in nature to be able to get a vaccine uh, that quickly. But the challenge, I think, remains that, and, and the premier said this before, which is, you know, there's start starts and and and, uh, and readjustments whenever they hear from health authorities when they come back and they say, well, you know, the international world says that AstraZeneca can only be given to people that are 60 years and above. And then, then they stop and say, well, no, not really. We can now do it to 55 and above. And then, you know, somebody else comes back and says, no, only 60 and above. And it just becomes a challenge. Uh, and so AstraZeneca, unfortunately, is one of those that I've had, I've had anecdotal evidence where friends of mine said, you know, I'm not going to get the AstraZeneca vaccine. I'm going to wait for the other ones. And, you know, I'm the type of person that I'll take whatever vaccine is available uh, when, when it's my time. But I think it causes that challenge and the anxiety uh, with, with not only the AstraZeneca one, but vaccines in general. Yes, it's mixed messages, to be sure. And I'm with you, John. Uh, if I get called to get the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, I'll be I'll be there within an hour for sure, um, because 
as as they've tried to say, Karen, all of the experts that we're talking about a minuscule amount of reactions in the form of blood clots. It's it's almost statistically insignificant. Yeah, it is. And I, you know, I'm not a vaccine expert, but I, you know, I agree with you. It, like when you have a mass inoculation of the globe, you, things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. And you know, that the, the, these individuals, they may or may they maybe they wouldn't have gotten blood clots. Maybe they would have. But they, we wouldn't have known because they wouldn't have been vaccinated all at the same time. And, and now they are. But I, I, I'll take AstraZeneca, and I'm right in that risk group. But I, I think the risk is, is low. And it's extremely unfortunate that governments feel that they have to react this way to say, to suspend the use of AstraZeneca because of the impact it may have on vaccine hesitancy overall. Is that? And, do you think it's a good strategy, though, no, to, to, to to go fifty five and up? That it's okay for those people? No, because because it begs the question: what, Don't we care about blood clots in older people? Right? Like either blood clots are an issue or they're not, from my perspective. And maybe I'm naive in the matter, but you know, I understood about the testing that they didn't do the control test of over sixty five, except that they did in the UK. Right. Like they had real world experience. So. What's missing, like, I don't know where AstraZeneca is in all of this, because people are speaking for them. And the company is not actually being very uh, helpful in in defending their own product. And so now, you know, Canada's caught in this position of, oh, well, we, we better suspend it. But from my perspective, I don't see any good reason to suspend it. And unless it's just a PR issue that they don't want to have to deal with, or they don't, they're worried about vaccine hesitancy overall. Well, Bob, what about you? I can speak with some authority on this because I'm vaccinated <laughs> with uh, AstraZeneca. So okay, there you go. Congratulations. Uh, there you go. Uh, here, I wish I was so lucky. <laughs> and look, I obviously I had no uh, no problems or anything like this, but what a schmozzle this issue has been. Uh, <laughs> handled very badly yesterday by the NACI advisory board. They were confusing, disorganized. Frankly, they were unprofessional, leaking out the information. There wasn't a proper press conference. Literally, if these were not health professionals, you would have thought that they were trying to sabotage the national vaccine program. I mean, literally, I don't think they could have done a worse job. And then I agree with Karen. Where is AstraZeneca? Uh, You know, like they should be out there speaking much more on behalf of their product. Do you know, I am more likely to get a blood clot if I got on a plane this afternoon and flew someplace than I am from the AstraZeneca vaccine. This whole conversation, I think, is likely absurd. Uh, it's an overreaction. There doesn't seem to be any any judgment or conta- uh, context that's exercised here. And we've scared a whole pile of people away. I know lots of people who said, oh, what you know, vaccine did you get? And I tell them, and they're kind of like all hesitant. And I know other ones that are deliberately waiting because they don't want the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. That is a huge problem when you're trying, you know, to uh, ramp things up and get your country all vaccinated. So not handled well by uh, by this federal committee uh, or Health Canada or, quite frankly, AstraZeneca, a pox on all their houses. Uh, you know, I think that the best public relations was conducted on behalf of the health minister, Christine Elliott, yesterday when she went and publicly got her AstraZeneca shot at a downtown pharmacy. I think that did more for uh, the for good feelings around AstraZeneca than anything else I can remember recently. 
John? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly right. And then that's the same thing as, you know, and it shows and having somebody like a Christine, Minister Christine Elliott uh, doing that, you know, shows that, look, if I can do it, everybody else can do that. And we've seen that before. And that's why leaders um, have taken the vaccine shot for those who don't believe or are skeptical about vaccines in general. It just shows you that, uh, you know, look, like, let's get out there and let's get the vaccines uh, into people's arms as much as possible. Um, you know, but there will be some that will be skeptical about it. And that's, and that's fair, I guess, for them. But the, the vast majority of us need to get this vaccine done as soon as possible so we can get some herd immunity and so we can get to some back to some level of new normal. Right. Now, we will be discussing further the AstraZeneca vaccine with um, Dr. Alon Vaisman coming up here in the next half hour. But before I let you three go... I want to get your takes on the relationship between Toronto Sun columnist slash reporter Brian Lilly and Premier Doug Ford's top communications person, Ivana Yelich. Um, Karen, is this is this a scandal? Why didn't Brian Lilly bring it up sooner just to, to get that out of the way so nobody would uh, call conflict of interest? Uh, it, 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 it sort of died down, but it was it, there was a lot of buzz around it on the weekend. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't. I don't think it's a scandal, but certainly, it, it would have been. Can, this is. It's one of these situations that could have been completely avoided if there had just been some upfront declaration. Because you know, I think everybody understands that adults have relationships and adults have jobs, and we're you know everyone does their job. And um, you know, maybe there was some favoritism, but it's not as if the son suddenly became a favorite of the Progressive Conservative Party or Doug Ford. Like they have a long history of supporting right. conservatism and Doug Ford. So I. I don't think there's really, I don't think there's much there there, but it's one of those things that could have been avoided entirely. And I think too, Bob, that, um, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, reporters, other reporters from other media outlets knew about this relationship and yet they didn't report on it. But I think there's, people are careful when they're in that business. I don't want to point the finger at you because maybe you'll dig up some dirt on me. Uh, you know, so I think I think people are somewhat protective uh, of themselves in that situation. Yeah, I think there's a, a more than a few glass houses around. Yeah. So I think people probably tend to be a little, uh, a, a little careful. Look, I don't care who's kind of sleeping with, with who uh, at the federal, provincial or municipal level. Uh, those are uh, that those are the uh, it's private and that's up to those individuals i do think i agree uh with karen if there had just been a degree of acknowledgement of this off the top it could have avoided this whole problem um and the other thing is and this is where brian Lilly has a problem and i i personally like him i've been on a, a number of panels with him but this is where he has a problem he's brought he's brought the relationship uh, of of a of another reporter at, at the provincial level with a bureaucrat um, up in in one of his columns, and he did the same thing with another couple federally. Well, when you do that, and then you don't report your conflict of interest, you've really left yourself vulnerable. I think that's what he did in this circumstance. I hope they clean it up, and then I hope we don't hear about it ever again. Right, John? Do you see the irony there in in what Bob's saying about Brian? Well, no, I look, I, I know Brian and I know them both well and, and I like them both. So I, I wish them happiness like I do with any other you know, relationship that, 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 that's out there. But I think it's the optics more than anything else and, and the perception, right? When, especially when it comes to a reporter and a staffer, no matter what level it is and uh, no matter where they are. I think that it's, it's one of those unfortunate situations that came out. I think that obviously they'll 
they'll uh, they'll deal with it when if they can. But I think it was more the optic and the perception, quite frankly, that is the problem. Okay, we have discussed it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thank you all for the great conversation once again. Thanks, thanks. Thank you. It's our Tuesday strategy panel. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner of Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stint, CEO at Variety Village, and Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist, Senior Counsel to National Public Relations. Jane for Libby. And coming up next here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, what you need to know about the AstraZeneca vaccine, separating the facts from the fake news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host... Jane Brown. Libby is back tomorrow. If you've been listening to Zoomer Radio News over the past day, then you know that the chief medical officers of health for all of the provinces and territories have agreed to pause any use of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine for people under 55. The recommendation comes from our National Advisory Committee on Immunization based on increased incidence of blood clotting in younger adult recipients recipients, mostly women in Europe. So how serious is this? And should we be concerned about getting this particular vaccine? To put things in perspective, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Vaisman, epidemiologist, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. Dr. Vaisman, thanks for joining us on Fight Back. Thank you for having me. What do you make of this most recent decision around this vaccine? This was a very challenging decision to make because on the one hand, there was that signal that there was an increased risk of clotting among the younger population that we got from Europe. On the other hand, we have the realities of Canada, which is that we have very generally very poor vaccine supply and we need all the vaccines we can get. And the second thing is that we're in the middle of the third wave and very rapidly increasing cases. So I think it's important for the public to recognize that they're putting a pause on the vaccination in that age group in order to have time to analyze the data and see if there's any additional risk that's been provided based on the data from Europe. Okay, so I'm reading here the statement from the Council of Chief Medical Officers of Canada, uh, of health, sorry, on the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine. And it says that the decision, the recommendation from NACI is based on evidence of rare instances of vaccine-induced prothrombotic immune thrombocytopenia, or VIPIT, following AstraZeneca vaccination reported in Europe with high or with associated high case fatality and related serious outcomes. That sounds a bit dire. Yeah, so this, this uh, signal that they saw from Europe, again, it was a very rare occurrence of this happening in, in, the, in the younger population. It's basically a drug-induced or vaccine-induced, in this case, uh, complication where the platelets, which are responsible for forming clots, are rapidly consumed and cause clotting in places where there shouldn't be clotting very rapidly. And in this case of clotting, among all the other cases of clotting, is particularly dangerous. It has a, high, a relatively high mortality. So the risk is estimated currently to be something very low, maybe one in 100,000 or one in 150,000, so quite rare. And so the, the government wanted to pause things in order to look at that data and see, see how risky it is. And, and why could you surmise, or do you know um, by evidence, why it would be younger people having this extremely rare reaction? It's not yet clear why younger people have had this reaction. We know of other similar uh, drug-induced clotting states 
from other drugs, uh, one in particular called heparin, that sometimes younger people do get this complication. Perhaps there's a relationship there, but it is very early to tell, too early to tell why it is affecting primarily young people in this case. So why the age of 55 and above as safe for recipients of AstraZeneca? That's a great question. So I think they were balancing what they know based on the data available from Europe about the age group of the people who are affected. So generally speaking, it was people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Balancing that with the reality that we want to vaccinate uh, elderly group as much as possible, so the people who are above the age of 55. So they, they wanted to cut it off at some reasonable point. 55 is a sensible place to put that. It, it's not, it, you know, there's nothing magical about that number. It's just a sensible point to put that cutoff between where they think the risk is low enough um, compared to the risk of acquiring COVID and that itself causing very bad complications. Now, it's fair to say the other vaccines that have been approved in Canada, Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, which J&J is not yet available, but it is approved, uh, these ones are not showing any signs of even rare instances of blood clots, right? That's correct. At this time, neither of those three has had a signal even of there being an increased risk of clotting or other life-threatening complications or, or any neurological complications. Does that make you wonder why? I mean, wouldn't they be doing, uh, in terms of coming up with these vaccines, would there not be the same kind of research and science that goes behind developing them? Like, why would there be a difference with this one vaccine? Yeah, that's a good question. So what we know is that the vaccines have a different mode of delivery. The Pfizer and the Moderna are called mRNA vaccines. So you're injected with a small piece of this genetic code, whereas the AstraZeneca is a delivery via a uh, inactivated virus. And that's how you get the exposure and then your antibodies form to that. So there's a difference in the delivery of the vaccine. I think it's also important to recognize that when you do studies on these uh, vaccines, you you know, you start off with several tens of thousands of people and very, very rare instances, very, very rare complications won't be able to be detected when you have relatively few people. But once you start vaccinating tens of millions of people, you start to see other things developing which means that at this stage of the vaccine rollout, you may, as we are seeing, you start to see these very rare complications. And and that's when it becomes challenging to tease it out from, is this associated with a vaccine or is this the baseline rate of these complications? And thus far, the concern is high enough to think that there is a link between the vaccine and these complications. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby, along with Dr. Alon Vaisman, epidemiologist, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. We do have some questions for you, doctor, uh, and you can get in uh, on the conversation as well if you'd like to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Helen in Toronto, you have a question or comment? I have a comment. At first, it was seniors who weren't supposed to receive AstraZeneca uh, because it was showing to, shown to have problems with them. Now it's the people who are younger. Why didn't they get it all straightened out before release? Okay, that's a good question, Helen. Um, Helen's question about, you know, it was only the last week or so that it was determined to be safe for people 65 plus to get the AZ vaccine. So people are confused. Yeah, that, it's true. And I think whenever we're talking about vaccines, we have to distinguish two somewhat separate ideas. One is, is the vaccine safe? And the second, is it working well? So the initial concern was that in the trials that were done for AstraZeneca, the group age 65 and above, there were relatively few people in that trial. And so at the time when NASI released a statement, they didn't think there wasn't enough data to say at that time that it was going to be effective in that group. 
have a real-world data from the UK show that it was, in fact, uh, working very well in that group, and then they reverse the statement. The second issue is not whether it works, but more about safety. And that data has only recently arisen in Europe uh, from early to mid-March about these risks of clotting, and that was found in the younger group. So whereas the first issue is more about the question about whether it was working well, the second issue is about whether it's safe in that group. And there are somewhat two distinct concepts here. Dr. Vaisman, as you know, here in Ontario, the AstraZeneca vaccine is being given to those 60 and over in a growing number of pharmacies and doctor's offices. If you're booked or, you know, you want to get your shot, should you feel confident getting this one or should you wait until the mass clinics open for your age group to get a Pfizer or Moderna? Yeah, it would be great that we would be at a point like in the United States where we have such a massive supply. They have a massive supply of vaccine where you can uh, choose a vaccine, perhaps, although that's probably not very often, but, you know, even waiting a day or two. But in the state that we are in Canada, with the pandemic being what it is, the cases rapidly rising, the ICU being overflowing, the wards getting uh, many patients admitted with COVID, the recommendation should be that anyone who's eligible to receive a vaccine should receive it as soon as possible. Now that they've put on hold the vaccination of that group, I mean, it's very rarely happening in Canada to begin with. Now we're still in the group that it's older. But any person who is eligible to receive a vaccine, if you're offered a vaccine, you should definitely take it uh, based on the safety recommendations from the federal government and the provincial government. I think that's the most important message for the public to take. And what do you think about an increase in vaccine hesitancy as a result of, I think it's fair to say, confusion around the AstraZeneca vaccine? I mean, even before this latest declaration yesterday, a poll suggested that only 53 percent of respondents would trust the AstraZeneca vaccine for themselves or family members. By comparison, 82 percent said they would trust receiving the Pfizer vaccine. Yeah, it's very unfortunate as the caller suggested that there's been a lot of back and forth about this vaccine. It's very unfortunate, and I understand that it takes a lot of discussion and a lot of clarification to explain what happened. But I would hope at least that this discussion and lack of certainty around the AstraZeneca vaccine hasn't affected the others. And I think it's important to recognize that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, which are also widely available and are being given currently to those age 70 and above, it's very important to recognize that those have been shown to be very, very efficacious. They work very well at preventing death, preventing hospitalization, and they are very, very safe in that group. We haven't seen any long-term consequences. The only number that Canadians should be focusing on right now is zero, and zero is the number of people who have died or been hospitalized in the trials who have been receiving Pfizer and Moderna. That's really, really important for Canadians to focus on. Let's go to Daryl in Toronto. Daryl, you have a question or comment? Well, it's just the idea that, you know, whatever they say from, from, from day to day. I mean, I've been trying to tell people also, you know, take the AstraZeneca, get whatever you can as soon as you can. But it's, it's again, it's the flip-flopping back and forth. I mean, whatever statement you make today, I, I find myself following, well, you know, what's going to come up in three or four days. And it's, it just gives the sense that they really don't know what's going on with this particular one. Yeah, that's a good point, Daryl. Do we have to be concerned, Dr. Vaisman, that there will be another set of data and then another set of recommendations on this vaccine? It certainly could happen, but the fact that we know that tens of millions of people have received these three vaccines that are now being given in Canada, we know that whatever does arise will be quite rare because we've, you know, there's been observations of so many people that if there is a signal, it'll be a very, very rare event. I think it's also important to recognize that when you're comparing a vaccine you should be comparing it to the possibility of getting COVID, not to the possibility of you just being healthy, walking around. 
because then you have to really evaluate your risks of getting COVID and what's going to happen to you, your likelihood of being hospitalized and dying from COVID compared to the risk of the vaccine. And that's a really important analysis given how common COVID is now with the rising cases. It, you know, the idea of prevention, of course, is a generally a tough topic to try to convey to people. But that's really the analysis you should be going through your mind. Dr. Vaisman, I want to play you a clip and then I'd like to get your reaction to it. Dr. Howard New, Canada's Deputy Chief Medical Officer of Health, uh, provided this advice for people who have already uh, received a dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine. For those who have been vaccinated with AstraZeneca for less than 20 days and anyone vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine going forward, you should seek immediate medical attention in the rare event that you develop symptoms starting four days or more after vaccination, such as shortness of breath, chest pain, leg swelling, persistent abdominal pain, sudden onset of severe or persistent worsening headaches or blurred vision, and skin bruising, other than at the site of vaccination. Dr. Vaisman, uh, is that good advice? Does that make people feel more nervous or, you know, ultimately any kind of side effect uh, gives us more knowledge, I suppose? Absolutely. I think that's excellent advice to be providing people. And it would have been good if that was the way forward, if we had continued to do AstraZeneca or providing in that group. Again, we're not really doing that group so much yet, but and then advising people to monitor for symptoms, because at least that way people have the information, the information to know about what to do, when it, what they should be watching out for. And, you know, some people may choose to still get vaccinated in that group, even with that uh, understanding that there is that very, very, very risk, rare risk. I think that's the operative word in that what his description there was, is that it is a very rare occurrence. Should you report any symptoms to your doctor? Because uh, I am hearing um, from some colleagues and friends who've had it that they feel a bit under the weather and maybe even feverish for uh, for a matter of days. Yes. Yeah, so um, when you get the vaccine, they will describe to you some of the side effects that are to be expected, which don't necessarily need to be reported, such as some mild fever, some headaches, some muscle aches, some sores, um, sore muscles. But beyond that, yes, anything beyond that should be reported, and they will advise you on what kind of symptoms you should be watching out for that are, might be more severe, um, anything that's persistent for several days. The other thing, of course, is that you might actually have COVID itself, despite just recently been having vaccinated, right. because it takes a while for the vaccine to work. So always keep in mind for that, that if you have shortness of breath, fever, trouble breathing, anything like that, you should be reporting that because you could actually have COVID. Or go for a test, right? Exactly. Yeah. Dr. Alan Vaisman, thank you. It was very informative. Thank you for having me. Dr. Alan Vaisman is an epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. I'm Jane for Libby. She returns tomorrow. Uh, coming up next... How desperate is the situation in the province's hospital intensive care units? An expert opinion, a couple of them, coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We're starting to hear ramped up warnings about a surge of cases of COVID-19, in particular the variants in Ontario Hospital ICUs. The president of the Ontario Hospital Association is saying that the province could face a new surge in patient transfers and cancelled surgeries as it deals with the third wave of COVID-19 in the weeks ahead. His name is Anthony Dale. He says if the trend of increasing patient numbers arriving in the province's hospitals continues, it will further strain capacity. 
Uh, and in fact, the system is already being strained because we're now seeing, they're now seeing younger patients with more severe cases of COVID-19 at the moment. And maybe our experts have more up-to-date information, but there are 410 COVID patients in ICUs, 46 more than a day before, and about half are on ventilators. Joining us to discuss the situation, Dr. Carrie Bowman, bioethicist at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Steve Flindall, an emergency physician in York Region. Doctors, welcome. Hello. Dr. Bowman, how serious is the current situation? We hear those numbers. What do they mean? You know, I know the numbers you know, and Dr. Flindell, who's about to speak, I highly imagine is can give us the absolute accuracy on those numbers. So I'm going to defer to him on that one. Okay, excellent. Dr. Flindell. Uh, well, our facility is uh, at over 100% occupancy right now. Uh, and every day, every shift, people are, my colleagues are seeing uh, sick patients coming in requiring admission, and some of them are deteriorating pretty quickly and requiring ICU admission, and there's almost no more left to put them. So what do you do in that situation? Uh, well, they stay in the eMERGE, they occupy eMERGE beds, so it's harder to see new patients coming in, and they try to uh, get the least sick people out of the ICU that they can and uh, open up a space for them. Are you moving them around? We're hearing about patients being airlifted from Toronto to Kingston, for instance. Well, our facility has uh, had, uh, it's a now two-hospital site, but the second hospital is a uh, COVID relief centre. So we've uh, not opened our new hospital, and we've had to send patients to that uh, facility just for the ICU capacity. Do you know, uh, Can you could you say what that magic number is before we start to see, uh, you know, and we will talk about this as well, mm-hmm. uh, the triage online calculator where doctors are trying to weigh which patient has a better case of survival than another? Um, you know what? I don't know offhand the number of ventilators we have in our ICUs across the province. Uh, but once once that hits 100%, uh, where they're all being used in the ICUs, that's when we're going to have to start doing that. Dr. Kerry Bowman, uh, what are your thoughts as we see these numbers climb? We have to be prepared. There's no question. And, you know, the numbers are, I'm not going to say the numbers are variable, but they move a lot. So it's not surprising we don't know the exact numbers right as we're having this conversation. But what's clear is there's a rapidly rising trend. We do have to be prepared. And, you know, I think that's why it's important we talk about the critical care uh, policy that's being introduced um, for Ontario and the ethics of it, at, you know, in, in this conversation. Um, we were all hoping that, you know, wave three would be averted um, or be quite weak because of the vaccine rollout. But it doesn't look like that is going to be the case. And we really absolutely must be prepared. Tell us more. The critical care policy is what we're discussing with the online triage calculator. Yeah, so that's a policy that's been put together by, you know, uh, a team of people, um, the bioethics table um, with consultation to others. And um, it's a policy that, to my knowledge, still has not been formally released. Um, it's got multiple indicators, which Dr. Flindel and I can both talk about, but, but really it's looking at if, if there's a massive surge towards uh, critical care beds or a significant surge, who would be able to get those beds and who would get priority and how would that be ranked? It doesn't directly address age, um, 
And, uh, you know, it, it, it's actually got a lot of very good indicators with it. I still think there's a significant chance for discrimination with it. And, you know, Jane, one of the really important issues with this is there's a request that the consent of, that the um, consent laws of Ontario be, what would the word be, uh, not eliminated, but lifted in relation to this. So therefore, people could, in theory, decisions could be made about who would receive this treatment independent of the consent of the patient or their family. That is not happening now, and the government of Ontario has not allowed that. But that's an important element for us to discuss, I believe. Dr. Flindell, do you see this happening if uh, the cases continue trending in the wrong way? Well, I, let me be clear. I don't think there's a single physician in the province that wants this to happen. Uh, we're, we're trained and work our whole careers to try to save lives, and it would be um, absolutely heartbreaking for this to have to take place. If, if trends don't improve, though, it, it may be a possibility. And, uh, you know, the, the way things are going right now, there's no clear mandate from the government to try to uh, do anything to lower the infection rates and the spread. And uh, I'm, I'm very concerned that it may actually come to this. Would there be a limit on the number of, say, ventilators available? Would there be a scenario in Ontario where they would all be used at the same time? Well, I think that's the, uh, that's the fear, is that yeah. there may come a time where all our vents are actually being occupied by patients. And uh, as soon as you get one more patient than you have vents, some hard decisions have to be made. Let's talk about uh, this trend towards younger patients, people in their 40s and 50s, uh, now now needing hospitalization as a result of catching a COVID-19 variant, uh, which we're learning from research can be more deadly, certainly does increase hospitalizations. What are you seeing in terms of cross-section of age uh, Dr. Flindel. Oh, definitely. It's been a shift to younger patients. We, we have patients as young as uh, their mid-20s in our ICU. Um, uh, the last several shifts I've had, I've had uh, referrals for patients in their 30s, and I've uh, had some critically ill patients in their mid-50s. So this is uh, not a fantasy that anybody's trying to float out there to, to scare people. This is, this is, in fact, happening. And um, what condition are they in when they come in, and what, uh, how or what treatment are you finding success with, or is it just very patient-dependent? Uh, well, there's not a lot of tools in our arsenal, unfortunately, to this day. Um, you know, patients come in from minimally ill and uh, just being responsible and getting tested to patients that are critically ill and requiring intubation very quickly. Um, the, the best uh, treatment I've seen so far remains Decadron in those uh, who are getting uh, hypoxic. That's the steroid that's been shown to improve survival. We're also uh, using uh, Remdesivir. And uh, forgive me, I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of this drug, Toximolabmab, um, which is a more uh, experimental antiviral medication. Um, and, you know, we're having patients that are so sick that uh, remdesivir uh, is not indicated due to how 
unwell they are. That's that's how sick these people are coming in sometimes. We're getting close to where I need your final comments. I'm speaking with Dr. Carrie Bowman, bioethicist at the University of Toronto, Dr. Steve Flindel, an emergency physician in York Region. Dr. Bowman, in terms of what those of us who are healthy and well uh, do right now, and I know the answer to the question, but what is our best course of action to ensure that hospitalizations don't keep going up? Well, they may keep going up, but so, and I, I'll be brief because I know we're wrapping up, but, but, you know, when it comes to the triage protocols, I, I'm going to take a position on this. I actually think the suspension of the consent and capacity uh, legislation is a big mistake. Uh, I think it is going too far. So what that would mean, Jane, is that, you know, if a person said, I, I don't allow my father uh, to come off life support, I don't support it, I don't allow it, then in theory, if the legislation was lifted, they could do that. Uh, to make way for someone else. I actually think the Ontario protocols, you know, when people can find them online and hopefully they'll be there soon, are actually very progressive. I still think they run a very significant risk of discrimination because discrimination doesn't sit within the conscious mind. And I also think that the hospitals, and look, I, this, I'm a person that's been working in hospitals for a long time. They, you know, when you look at the vaccine rollout, they pretty well ignored policies and just did what they thought was best. And to some extent, they still are. And I would worry very much that they may not actually adhere to the policies. They may sort of cherry pick what aspects of the policies they like. That's my fear. Mm. Dr. Flindel, your final comments. Uh, I'd, I'd just like to say what I said before, that nobody wants this to come to pass. Um, I'm really hoping people can uh, recognize the seriousness of the situation and kind of clamp down themselves, even without strong leadership through the government. And hopefully we can avoid this situation. Um, if if things continue on the trend, there's going to be some tough decisions. And I, I agree that, uh, you know, this this may have some very undesirable consequences. Well, you can't say you didn't warn us, right? Uh, unfortunately, no, I guess not. Unfortunately, yeah. Well, I thank you both for your time. Uh, it's a conversation we'll continue to have here on Fight Back, but important information for our listeners. Thank you. You're very welcome. Take care, Jane. You too. Stay safe. Day. Dr. Carrie Bowman, bioethicist at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Steve Flindel, emergency physician in York Region. Libby returns tomorrow. We'll look forward to that. She will have the Federal Auditor General on, Karen Hogan, to talk more about uh, her most recent report on a lack of preparedness for this pandemic, and now well over a year uh, we've been experiencing it. Uh, so that conversation, if you want to get back into uh, that that conversation during uh, Fight Back tomorrow, we would look forward to that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.